been raining a lot here in LA, and it's been really weird. Well, and hailing too, right? It's snowing, hailing and snowing. I think I think it was snowing in Pasadena. Wow, it's been like eighty here. <laughs> it was. I mean, it was like um, it felt like torrential downpour, like um, just a downpour when uh, two days ago is what it was, and it, like I I had to go somewhere really quickly, and I was like. I'm having to check the radar here. I never checked the radar in LA. <laughs> yeah. Why am I having to check yeah. the radar? Because like we get, we were actually under a severe thunderstorm warning for like, th- like an hour or whatever. There was a flash flood warning for four or five hours. I was like, mm-hmm. what is going on here? Um, but that I, I that made, or when thinking about today, I was like, man, ask a Thomas a question based off this raining. Would would you prefer when watching movies? Do you prefer rainy day movies or when you're sick movies? Does that make sense? Um. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think rainy day movies. Okay, because you're not yeah. you're not like physically ill in some way. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. I um, yeah, when I'm when I'm, especially if I'm feeling bad, I want to kind of distract myself. Like when like when I had COVID last year, yeah, I like caught up on like Barry and <laughs> also like did Legos at yeah. the same time. You know, it was like, uh, but like a rainy day when you're just like I'm gonna sit down and like cruise through these couple of like criterion movies i've been putting off like that's that's a solid day we're gonna watch, i like uh, that i'm gonna watch these jacques demi movies these umbrellas of Cherbourg. well it's raining yeah. um yeah well so, yes when i was sick with covid i just like what's mediocre movies i can watch and not think about yeah. so there's yeah, a lot exactly. of that there's a lot of that i think rainy movies are like let me let me watch these good movies i've been putting off and sick days are like i just want something like to not think about and just shut my mind off. So you have like the comfort movies that are like whatever, or you have mm-hmm. the, where I was watching night game with Roy Scheider where he's like <laughs> chasing a serial killer. I was like, screw it. We'll watch this. Yeah. So- what I always think about is when I, I had pneumonia one time and uh, like walking pneumonia, but I was like, like body aches, like could not move. And my sister was like, Oh, well you can't like move or anything. So I'm going to pick the movie. And that was the first time I had ever seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I oh. like hated it. Did you really? Because <laughs> I just I was miserable, and she was like, "I'm gonna pick <laughs> this movie," and I was like, "I don't want to watch this right now." I was also like twelve. I'm yeah. like, "It was a chick flick." A chick but flick. Uh, do you still hate yeah, that, Breakfast? No, at Tiffany's? that was that was one I had to revisit later, and yeah. you know. I mean, Mickey, I'd like to be like yeah. I'd like to be like eleven year old me with pneumonia was like, "This is a really problematic <laughs> performance." <laughs> What is Mickey Rooney doing here? <laughs> oh man, uh, yeah, I yeah, I get that. I get. Th- oh, yeah, I love that you're like. She's like, I'm picking Breakfast at Tiffany's. You'll have to watch this. Mm-hmm. Um, no, my. I also this when I was sick. My first like, I can just remember the sick movie I watched was actually Casablanca. Funny enough, um, oh. I well, the reason why was because I was sick. It was this just the irony around this is that I was I was freshman freshman year of high school. I was sick and it was the day they were teaching uh, Hollywood in the 1930s, like pop, like basically like American culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I missed both days <laughs> of them actually te- talking about movies in uh, a class setting in high school. And, <laughs> and, and I basically, I looked, I researched online and I asked my mom to go to Blockbuster. I was like, Hey, can you get me these like three movies or whatever? I think it was Casablanca. Um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and I think gone with the wind. So I think in a four day, uh, well, not four, but a two day period, 
I watched Casablanca, Mitch Smith Goes to Washington. I rewatched Wizard of Oz and I watched Gone with the Wind in just this two days. And yeah, I remember that's a crash course. That's a crash course and 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 golden age of Hollywood kind of cinema. And I remember Casablanca, I was so enthralled by because it was the Warner Brothers DVD at that time was like really terrible, like sound quality. So you had to jack it all the way up to like turn the volume all the way up so you can actually hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like a humidifier going and I still couldn't hear it. So I had to put subtitles on. So I'm like basically sick and reading the subtitles of Casablanca. And still I'm just like, this movie's amazing. And I guess I, I became a pretentious 15 year old at that point in time. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I always remember when I was in like early high school, getting really into old films. My mom was at Dollar Tree uh-huh. and they had a DVD of the man who knew too much. Uh-huh. Uh, the Jimmy Stewart one. The, no, the, the, Peter uh, the original one. Peter Laurie one. Yeah. And she was like, oh, Hitchcock, I'll get this for Thomas. And that was that was the first time I became aware of like, you know, I just thought like, oh, like a, you're going to make a DVD out of this at, and sell it in a commercial setting like the it's going to be the best be quality. Yeah. God. You could not understand yeah. a word that like I started yeah. and I just had to turn it off. It was so bad. Yeah, there was that Hitchcock collection that you could buy for like five dollars in, in a bin. And it was like it was like every single British movie he made or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they came in like the cases they came in were like basically just like the like CD slips is what it was. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like a stack of them and they were they were terrible. But you you got all these Hitchcock British films that you couldn't find anywhere else. And you got them for five mm-hmm. bucks was the thing. Um, but yeah, I guess enough banter, Thomas. <laughs> uh, we, we tried something new this time. So I, I'm Brandon Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is Cinenation Podcast. We'll, we'll keep trying to banter whatever. We'll see if you like it. But yeah, uh, we're here for a new month. We're talking about movies on movies. But last month, Thomas, we talked about rom-coms and mm-hmm. uh, the votes are in. Uh, I've seen what the, some of the most watched rom-coms are from our listeners and the uh, the uh, answers might surprise you. My my takeaway from seeing the numbers last night was we got to pump up those set it up numbers, guys. I thought the same thing. We need more people out there watching set it up. Come on. It, that's why I put it on there. I was like, let me see how you've actually seen this. And it was the lowest one. I was like, guys, mm-hmm. you're what you're you're sitting on a rom com classic here that you guys aren't watching. It's on Netflix. Go see it. Yeah. Um, which one did you think was the the top one? Um. There were three. Mo- there were there were so there were four movies that were at the top. Some were kind of tied. But there was there was yeah. I, all of them. I feel like I just I noticed the ones that performed poorly. All of them I yeah. feel like performed fairly well. Runaway Bride was kind of surprisingly low. I didn't have Runaway uh, Bride on there. I had pretty. I had, did I have Runaway Bride? I thought you had Runaway Bride. It was like uh, one of the last ones, right? No. No, I didn't. What was towards the end? There was a there was a Julia Roberts. There was Julia Roberts one, but that did very well. Pretty Woman was huh. was did very well. I don't know what I'm thinking of. But know, one either. of the last ones, I was like, oh, more people need to have seen this I, one too. I think it was set it up. Set it up was one. Oh no, you've mm. got mail. You've got mail. That, actually, yes, that was okay. That I was, was shocked one. by that one. Yeah, that was. The it one was where like I was almost like, oh, this is a classic. 50, it was almost fifty fifty. I was like, really? You've got mail is the fifty fifty one out of these out of the did group? You, did you not have TBS in the early two thousands? <laughs> That's um, okay. So when Harry met Sally, yeah, did well. That, that was that did well. Um, that was number one for a bit, but it fell off. It was surprisingly. Pretty Woman did well. Pretty Woman I, did very well. That was, I think, tied for second. Is what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was second. That that was second. When Harry Met Sally was tied for third with the Wedding Singer. Is what it was. Oh, interesting. And then number one 
was 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, I mean, that's a good movie. Yeah. So that, And that also, okay, maybe maybe everyone missed uh, You've Got Mail on TBS because they were too busy watching 10 Things I Hate About You on ABC oh, Family yeah, every exactly. weekend. <laughs> that just kind of shows you our, our target audience there is, is, is millennials who are watching 10 Things I Hate About You. That was that was when I, I like kind of quote unquote sought, got in trouble for it. My mom would come in be like my sister and i would both be sitting there watching 10 things they hate about you on abc family and i would be like you guys just watched this last weekend like, good if you turn it on you gotta stay until he does the song in the yeah. stadium like you got you just have to and then followed by that was forrest gump is probably what was on the abc family program <laughs> at that point in time because that's usually i was like every weekend was like forrest gump or 10 things they hate about you it was like that was before they got the rights to harry potter and then it was just harry potter, harry potter weekend all weekends yeah yeah. But see, ABC Family, I guess ABC Family, they did. They actually did the 10 Things I Hate About You series. Remember that for like a season? I do not recall that whatsoever. You, you remember that at all? Yeah, that was no. a thing. That was It was a show for like a year. Um, and it didn't do well, as, like, as you can see. Um, I think it was on ABC Family. Yeah. Uh, 2009 ran for one season. Hmm. Um, so there you go. Nicholas Braun. Was one of the, was one of the characters in it or actors in it now uh, of succession fame. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was last month. This month we're talking about movies on movies. Um, it's it's Oscar season at this point in time uh, as we're recording this. Uh, awards are coming out and, and there's been a lot of movies about making movies or there's references in, in the movies about characters making movies. If it's a brief kind of see or some sequences and everything everywhere all at once. If it's the Fablemans, if it's Babylon, um, but Hollywood has always been obsessed with itself, Thomas, as you, as <laughs> you, you don't know. Um, and so they love making movies about themselves. And, and usually every few years, there is some movie that comes along and and really just like grabs the Hollywood's attention of like, this is what we aspire to be. Uh, if it's La La Land uh, uh, or whatever. Um, it's La La Land and everybody goes, oh, we do sit in a lot of traffic. traffic. Wow. <laughs> we do do a lot of careless or, or terrible auditions. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Babylon is, is this just kind of insane trip down 1920s Hollywood. I will uh, have seen Babylon by the end of the month. Okay. I, okay. I have a feeling I'm going to love Babylon just because uh, the, the, the people, people I follow on, on Twitter that I, I agree with often yeah. are, are Babylon heads. I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Babylonian myself. Um, mm-hmm. I really loved it. it. It's not for everyone. I've had several discussions with people who are like, but why did you like it? And I'm like, because I did. And usually a lot of times it's like, well, this doesn't make sense. I was like, yeah, but that actually happened to people. It's like, <laughs> like, like, I know it doesn't make sense to you here. And I was there like, they're like, yeah, but these characters are so selfish. Like they're actors. What are you expecting to be? <laughs> um, but yeah. And so there, there's people that have, have, have uh, problems with it, but I, I was surprised. I, I saw it uh, at a, a theater in Mississippi when see it when my, when I was back home and it was me and two other people in the theater. I, I saw I was probably the last person to see it with those two people in Mississippi because it like was out of the theater by the next day because mm-hmm. um, it was over the holidays. But when talking about the I, movies on movies, we talked about this way back in the day, like a few years ago when he did like the one episode, one genre per, per episode type thing. Um, and so what do you think of when you think of movies on movies as a genre? 
the first thing that comes to mind is always like I think it's so interesting the way that that actual filmmakers choose to represent the fiction of filmmaking on mm-hmm. screen. Yeah, you know that that's something I, I always think about every time I watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when they when they do the like filming of of uh, the show the Lancer. Yep, and you know they've got multiple angles and and it's shot from like all this coverage and then they're like cut wow that was a great take and i'm like they're not shooting with eight cameras right now that would have taken a whole day to shoot that scene with that many (laughs) setups um but you know that's that's i think that kind of is a piece of what i think of which is this this it's it's like movies on movies are about creating kind of the legend of hollywood there's there's in jokes to the people who understand how the industry works and have experienced it. But there's also a lot of kind of myth making yeah. and and romanticizing, even in the ones that, that kind of try to be like, this is how it really is. There's still this kind of romanticizing of it that um, so so it's all kind of it feels like it's all about striking that balance between being like this is what it's actually yeah. like and also keeping that kind of facade of of hollywood going yeah they they try to have this allure to it um yeah there's a lot because if you completely burst the bubble nobody's going to come see your movie, your movie that you just made yeah you're, you're trying <laughs> to have it be glamorous in some way but the thing is w- within this genre i think we'll talk about some this this month is like you have certain movies that there's movies on movies that are like about the actual filmmaking of it if mm-hmm. it's like living in living in oblivion um or sometimes you have the one where it's like an artist who's struggling to figure out what to do with the movie and that's eight and a half uh, mm-hmm. and then sometimes you have like a comment on society which or comment on the industry which is which is today's movie mm-hmm. uh, with sunset boulevard and then you have other movies like say there's also kind of a subgenre of talking about the adults film industry in a way mm-hmm. it, it's be boogie nights or whatever um, and then you have movies that try to take that kind of try to turn a movies on movies film into a genre film in some way. Like I just watched, mm-hmm. um, uh, which also kind of goes adult film industry, but I just watched like eight millimeter with Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage. And it's like him infiltrating the adult film underground of LA and New York and trying to find out all these different things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also had of late kind of the historical, you know, with like, with like Mank or yeah. uh, the the Godfather yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. series they mm-hmm. just did for Paramount, more of this kind of like what let's go behind the scenes of this classic movie and, yeah. and tell you this story. And there and I know they'll probably do more. I think it's like uh it's the, I think the Big Goodbye, which is like about making of Chinatown. I feel like Ben Affleck or someone has the rights to that to make into a movie or a TV show. Um, people are kind of fascinated with the makings of well, Hollywood is fascinated with the makings of, <laughs> of movies. I will say. Um, I don't know if 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 uh, the general public is. That's always kind of the question is is while Hollywood might like something, is the general public interested in what they do? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it hits with, say, La La Land. Um, sometimes it doesn't hit as well at the box office, like, say, the Fablemans of late, um, even in Babylon as well, um, where some things interest people and some things don't. I do think with, say... Babylon it's a movie that doesn't really it it I won't say it glamorizes Hollywood if if you think it does I think you're kind of missing the point of the film <laughs> um but there is there is extravagance to it I guess you could say um but La La Land even in, in a similar fashion like that 
that it tries to romanticize it, but there's, I think Chazelle after seeing Babylon, I was trying to say more in La Land that I gave him credit for. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, and there's kind of these running th- things that will happen. So like you have these characters who it could be the rising star, like the aspiring actress, like in La Land, or if it's even the stars, Bo- the early versions of, of stars born, um, with Judy Garland, where it's a young person, a young person who's coming in, or if it's the artist, where like the kind of idea with those is that you have the rising star. And when there's a rising star, there has to be a falling star. Like mm-hmm. Hollywood can't have two big people at the same time. If one gets big, you have to lose <laughs> one. Is kind of the idea that that's mm-hmm. that star is born mentality has always kind of um, like followed. Uh, the artist does it as well. Um. And and also you'll have that kind of transition of time with say Babylon. The, I, I, everyone's obsessed with sound to talkie, sound to talkie. And today, mm-hmm. that's a big part um, of this uh, with Sunset Boulevard. And so with Sunset Boulevard, Dave, if you haven't seen it, it's streaming currently on Canopy. It's surprisingly, it's now on HBO Max, which is surprising. It usually is. It's not right now. You're um, saying something got deleted from HBO Max's servers? No, I didn't. What a surprise! What a surprise! Um, there, it's so weird. I, the licensing deal, somebody went to movies. type in the, some programmer went to type in Sesame street and delete all of it. And they accidentally typed in sunset, sunset Boulevard, Boulevard and hit delete. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but it's now, it's not HBO max right now. It'll probably come back at some point. It like these, the streaming services, with their licensing deals. I'm like, but you pro, I mean, it's a paramount movie, but like, I feel like with your with thing with Turner, you kind of have rights to, it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. but it's not streaming on Paramount, but it's on Canopy, which you can, you can stream for free if you have, a uh, access to library of some kind. Um, but Sunset Boulevard, it's about this, uh, this struggling writer in Hollywood who has several years of failing at writing kind of small B movies or whatever. And when the, when the creditors are after his car, he, after can't finding any money, he winds up at this old dilapidated mansion on Sunset Boulevard. And in it is this has been actress this of a bygone era of the silent film era uh norma desmond played by gloria swanson and the the young writer being joe gillis played by william holden and soon uh joe gillis realizes that he can kind of get some money out of this old old actress and he decides to help her rewrite her script that he thinks is terrible but he (laughs) feels could milk her for some money for a little bit uh which is where it kind of gets its noir qualities to it um and soon it the relationship between them becomes a little bit more than just business. Uh, and in the middle of this, he is kind of deals with two other kind of uh, interesting characters with um, Betty Schaefer, who is this young aspiring actress who still romanticizes Hollywood and thinks it could be a great place to be. Um, and then you have Eric von Stroheim, who plays Max uh, uh, Norma's Butler who has gone through some things in the industry as well. So you're seeing all these different facets of, of the Hollywood industry with these kind of four characters. It was directed by Billy Wilder. It was written by Billy Wilder, Charles Brackett, and D.M. Marshman Jr. You'll find out more about him today because it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a name that many people know. Um, it was also produced by Charles Brackett. Uh, it was shot by John F. Seitz, uh, music by Franz Waxman, uh, costume designed by Edith Head. These are all names that'll come up uh, together, and and Brackett and Wilder being kind of this big duo uh, at this point in time. And this would be their final film together, and you'll find out why 
on this episode of what drove them apart during the making of Sunset Boulevard. So, so Thomas, what's kind of your history with Sunset Boulevard? What are your, what are your initial thoughts when coming into this episode? You know, it's funny. It's funny. You should ask that because, uh, I've never seen it before. (laughs) We were just talking about classic films and, and being sick. Um, we watched the first half of this in the like community college film class mm. I took when I was in high school. And, um, and the way that class would work, I think it was like a 90 minute class or maybe mm. it was two hour class, but we would, we would like come in and like talk about the movie we'd watch the week before. And then we'd like start a new one. So we were never able to like finish. We, we were always watching them in, t- in two parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was out sick the second day. Oh, so no. I went for like years and, and had never seen <laughs> the end of Sunset Boulevard. Oh, no. <laughs> but, um, but I also was kind of like, kind of, Oh, it wasn't something I was like actively seeking out because you kind of know the end. It kind of tells yourself in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And I had seen, I had, you know, and, and I, I think I mentioned, uh, last month or maybe the month before I used to watch all those like AFI specials and they'd yeah. be like the greatest quotes of all time. And so I'd seen the, the end, like the big yeah. in set piece. Cause that's one of the most famous quotes. Um, so you know, it was one of it was it was 2009. It wasn't like I could just run to Blockbuster and necessarily grab Sunset Boulevard. They weren't it was really a little like, more difficult. A little more my difficult. local Blockbuster wasn't really concerned with stocking the classics. Um, <laughs> but I got there eventually. I don't exactly remember when I was finally like, I'm going to sit down and watch Sunset Boulevard in in the full. But it was probably sometime in college. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, great. Big Billy Wilder fan. We've talked about it multiple times. Yeah on the on the show um it's our third this is our third billy wilder movie the apartment yeah uh what yeah. is the prosecution now this yeah as we mentioned with the apartment it, wilder feels like the one and, and you can tell when you listen to modern filmmakers talk about him which a lot of modern filmmakers you know really look up to him but he's kind of the guy that was there for the transition mm-hmm. between what we now consider modern modern cinema and like classical yeah. hollywood cinema yeah. and so his his movies have the look and feel of classical uh, Hollywood while also having kind of the, the, the grit that we would come to get from like the, the kind of revolution in the sixties. So I, I think he's such a fascinating filmmaker and I think this is obviously one of, one of his best and most well-known works, yeah. but yeah, several viewed, viewed in pieces several years apart is my yeah. experience. Well, I know we watched it together. It was uh, a class at USC Remember, I don't know if you remember this. We watched it in a, in, in a, so a, top, a script, you know, script analysis class. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I'd seen it. I'd seen it a few times at, by that point. But I, th- um, I think we either watched it either as a class or it was like a extra credit assignment where you like watched it and broke down the sequences of the movie. I think that's what it was because mm-hmm. we watched the apartment. I know in class, and then he as like a midterm, he was like. Now go break down Sunset Boulevard for extra credit <laughs> or whatever. Um, and we did that. Yeah. Wilder is someone um, because he's 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 originally from Austria um, area um, and he had he kind of fled Germany during the rise of the Nazi party. And he had family members actually die in, in the Holocaust uh, in, the, in that area at that time. Wilder coming over to America has a very cynical view of the world, I would say. Um and so that's what they, a lot of his movies have that bite to them is that he's seen kind of the the dark the darkness of the world and how the how 
evil exists, I guess you could say. Um, so even a very early era of 1930s, 1940s Hollywood, he has that satirical dark outlook. And that kind of runs throughout many of his movies, even the ones that are supposed to be happy. There is always <laughs> this kind of darkness lying underneath. It. I mean, the apartment, while uh, from one perspective, a very happy movie, uh, deals with suicide and affairs yep. and adultery, all these different things. Um, and Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard kind of feels like when looking at his career, as we'll discuss, kind of feels like his midpoint. Like mm-hmm. it kind of like he feels like he is coming to his own as a filmmaker. Where he's made a few, a few bad movies, a few good movies. He's really kind of learned a lot. And by 1950, he's been in Hollywood for almost two decades now. And he is tackling something that he said was like, oh, like I'm going to try and make a movie that no one can really do. And that's a movie about a movie. Like everyone's always kind of attempted it, but it hasn't really worked. But yeah, with my history, it's like I was fascinated by that idea of tackling a movie about a movie uh, or the industry, at least. And I think I it was either college, maybe high school, because high school is when I was really going through a lot of lists like AFI list or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I know by college, my video store that I worked at very briefly, but it was open for like three years and they actually had a AFI 100 section. So mm. I know I'd watched it by then. Cause I had already, but I had already seen it by the time that opened up and that was like sophomore year of college, I believe, which was a great section. That was for like, I think if you talk about small town era, like having that kind of section was a very good spot yeah. for like learning about classic cinema. Um, and, and he had basically ranked in order. So like it went from like one all the way to a hundred, uh, on like a whole shelf. It was really nice, but yeah, it's one that I've always loved. And again, similar to when Harry met Sally last month, I'm going to try to be, as unbiased as possible but this is also one that this is me i just put on just to put on sometimes because it's one i i just kind of marvel at every time in some way and i think with not to tip my hand too soon i think kind of every aspect of it is i again thinking that wilder and his team are kind of at the top of their game with this movie let's dive into the history of how this got made kind of the production of it and everything so the year was 1948 and Billy Wilder had been working in the industry for 15 years now. In the late 1930s, Wilder began working with Charles Brackett as a writing duo. And they first worked with Ernest Lubitsch on several movies. And between 1938 and 1941, Wilder and Brackett wrote six movies together and received two Oscar nominations. One for Ninochka starring Greta Garbo and another mm-hmm. for Hold Back Down, which I've never seen. Um... In 1942, Wilder would decide to step into the director's chair with The Major and The Minor, which he co-wrote with Charles Brackett. A year later, Brackett would step into the role of producer for Wilder's films. Together, they would collaborate on Five Graves to Cairo, The Lost Weekend, A Foreign Affair, and The Emperor Waltz. They won two Oscars together, one for Best Acted Screenplay uh, and one for Best Picture for The Lost Weekend, and they received an adapted screenplay nomination for A Foreign Affair. After the release of A Foreign Affair and The Emperor Waltz in 1948, the duo started working on their next project, a movie that was to take down the industry that made them. <laughs> it was going to be, about, be about a forgotten Hollywood movie star who was attempting to make a comeback. Wilder said he was inspired by seeing all of the big houses on Sunset Boulevard that he would drive by when he first started working in Hollywood. 
He says all these mansions were built by these has been movie stars during the silent film era. And now he wondered what were they doing inside them? Now that the world has forgotten about them. Now they wrote a script and the duo wasn't happy with the script they worked with. So they decided to add a collaborator to their writing process because they feared their words was their work was getting stale. Basically Wilder and Brackett had been impressed by this young writer who worked for life. I think life magazine who had critiqued their previous film, the emperor Waltz. He basically said it was a terrible movie (laughs) and they agreed because they hated it because the film star Bing Crosby would ad lib and you don't ad lib in a Billy Wilder, Charles Brackett (laughs) script. Um, That writer would be Donald Marshman jr. Also known as DM Marshman jr. And when Marshman came on board, the big change that he made was he changed the lead character from an oil man to a young screenwriter, Hmm. which is somewhat shocking that that was not in the original version. Yeah, I mean, I could I could understand the idea of of wanting that character to be an outsider if your idea is kind of a a takedown of of Hollywood. I mean, I'm. it it seems obvious from from this standpoint that it should be like an up and comer and this should be a generational thing but but i could also see the idea of it being someone who who just pulled into town and uh it doesn't know anything about how things work in hollywood yeah it's funny i might mention this later but there's a movie that comes out two years later called the star and it starred betty davis uh and sterling Mm. hayden and a Mm, young natalie young natalie wood the difference is that basically Betty Davis is the main character. She's a has been actress. She's like, she now has no money. It's the opposite of Norma. She has no money. Uh, and she, uh, her, she, she doesn't have custody of her daughter, uh, who's playing Allie Wood. He's, she's been taken care of by like, a her ex-husband basically. And Betty Davis is trying to decide, does she choose the life of trying to continue to be a star? Even though Hollywood's turned her back on her, or does she try to raise a family and marry, Sterling Hayden, who was also an actor who failed at it and is now working in a shipyard and owns a shipyard, basically. So it's, it's similar. Like they, they, it feels like the stars, like a reaction, a more yeah. kind of positive reaction to um, to Sunset Boulevard, because there's there's a lot of similar ideas in it. My favorite uh, part in that movie is when Bay Davis goes, no, please, I'm a star. <laughs> yeah, she says that Sterling Hayden. I mean, she doesn't do it that way. She, no, she's because she, she there is a scene in that movie where she's actually work. She's like, I'm going to stop acting. Uh, and she starts working in like a department store and someone recognizes. Oh, no, that can't be her. She's too ugly. And Bay <laughs> Davis just like goes off. It's a great scene. It's a really great scene. Uh, anyway, that's the star. You can find it. Hopefully you can find it somewhere. Anyway, but with this movie, <laughs> the character that would turn to a young screenwriter would be Joe Gillis, who essentially was based on Marshman. They took his personality, his background, and even his birthday and gave it to Joe Gillis. Like I think even like I think uh Gillis is from Dayton, Ohio in the movie, and Marshman's from Cleveland, Ohio. So they actually took a lot of the stuff from Marshman. Um however, as the trio continued writing the script, they began to worry that Paramount Pictures, the studio who was making the movie, uh, and the Hayes Code, the censorship board that looked at every movie being made in Hollywood, might shut them down. So apparently they began to submit a few pages at a time to the censorship board and to Paramount uh, instead of sending a full script. Uh, Paramount executives believed that Wilder and his team were making a movie called A Can of Beans, which was 
apparently being adapted from a book that didn't exist. Uh, it also seems that to make sure the studio would not interfere with the making of the film, they decided to start filming the movie without a completed script. That's um, crazy. Nobody does, <laughs> does that, that anymore. No one does it. Um, before we dive into that, Wilder and Brackett still had to cast a movie without a script uh, and also without Hollywood finding out about what they were doing. So while Charles Brackett said that Wilder never looked at anyone else besides Gloria Swanson for the role of Norma Desmond, Wilder said he looked at several different people. Uh, he initially he basically said he initially viewed the film as a straight comedy starring Mae West and a young Marlon Brando. When he pitched the movie to Mae West, apparently she wanted a rewrite of the script, whatever. I think there was probably a script at one point, but it wasn't in this form, basically. But she wanted to rewrite the script or kind of write it for herself. And so Wilder and Brackett said no. Next, they would approach Greta Garbo, who had starred in Ninochka for them. Uh, and Garbo, who had not starred in a movie since 1941, completely leaving Hollywood at this time. She would also decline the movie and she would never act in another film in her entire career. Uh, Wilder would then speak with uh, Pola Negri, uh, who was an early silent film actress from Poland who had worked with Ernest Lubitsch as well. Uh, but Wilder said he had a difficult time understanding her on the phone because of her Polish accent. Uh, it's also been reported that she was appalled by the story that was pitched to her. <laughs> um, Wilder would then talk to Mary Pickford, and Mary Pickford was kind mm -hmm. of the biggest film actress of the silent film era. She was known as America's sweetheart, even though she was from Canada. Um, <laughs> and she helped kind of discover United artists with her husband at the time, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, T.W. Griffith. Um, and so Wilder went to her um, and he said, as they were pitching it, you could tell how badly she was reacting to the idea of this movie. And so they stopped and apologized if they offended her for the movie idea. Um, they then reached out to Clara Bow, who was a big silent film actress in the 1920s as well. Uh, but she had failed to transition over to talkies. She would decline saying that she was happy. She left Hollywood and wanted to keep her new life the way it was with her new family. Uh, they would offer also offer it to Norma Shearer, but she rejected the role due to her retirement. And also because she hated the story. A lot of no's. Yeah. <laughs> and then Brackett's like, yeah, he always thought about Gloria Swanson. It's a it's a tough pitch to be like, hey, you know how Hollywood kind of left you behind after the talkies came about? <laughs> yeah. Let's let's make a movie about how miserable you are. <laughs> exactly. They're like, no. So finally, after having lunch with famous director George Cukor, uh, Cukor, who had directed uh, The Women, uh, The Philadelphia Story. He also was one of the first directors on Gone with the Wind before being fired. He also was the director on The Wizard of Oz before leaving to go make Gone with the Wind and then fired for that. Anyway, uh, but he was a big director in Hollywood and Wilder was having lunch with him when Kukor suggested reaching out to Gloria Swanson and Swanson was one of the more famous actresses from the silent era, but she did not make it over to the sound films, the talkies while she made a handful of talkies. She basically stopped making movies. I think in the night in 1933, she'd make one more movie in 1941, um, which is her first film in like I said, almost a decade but she would then move to New York in the late thirties where she began working on stage and on the radio. Funny enough, even though she couldn't do talkies. Uh, <laughs> and Swanson was really not seeking a return to movies. She was actually quite happy with her career and she was, she was fine with Hollywood leaving her behind, but this role intrigued her after discussing it with Wilder. When she saw how much they were going to pay her, she said like it was more than she <laughs> ever had made in any of her other 
TV radio or TV or TV radio stage performances. Um, however, she initially refused when they asked her to do a screen test for the movie. She said, <laughs> I made 20 films for Paramount. Why they want to audition me without me, there would be no Paramount <laughs> and it would wind up in the script. And she's not wrong. She was actually the studio's top star for six straight years during the silent film era. Swanson recalls asking her friend George Kukar if she was being unreasonable for not doing the screen test. He told her if they ask you to do two or if they ask you to do 10 screen tests, you do 10 screen tests or I will personally shoot you is what he said to her. <laughs> so she soon agreed to the screen test. She did it and she would be paid $50,000 for her work, which is about a half million dollars today. Wilder says she was paid $150,000. I'm not entirely sure. Um, next, they would begin searching for their Joe Gillis. And as I said, they initially had Brando in mind, but he hadn't transitioned to film yet. They would then offer the role to Montgomery Clift. And Clift mm. would accept the role and agree to do the movie. However, they said he went off to like a, a ski resort for a few weeks. And later he'd come back and he'd back out of the movie a few weeks before production. Wilder said it was three days before productions. Others said it was a few weeks before. But Clift said that he had he realized that he had done a movie previously called The Heiress Olivia de Havilland, where he was a younger person with an older woman. And he was like, I've already done it before. I don't want to do it again. But mainly the the real story is that he was actually dating a singer, Libby Holman, who was 16 years older than him at the time. And she basically told him, if you do this movie, it will be a parody of our relationship. Oh. And I think she even th she either threatened to leave him or threatened to commit suicide if he did it. I don't know how true that statement is, but that was one report I read. So he backed out. And when he backed out, they flirted with the idea of hiring Fred McMurray, who had worked on Double Indemnity with Wilder before. Mm -hmm. They also thought about offering it to Gene Kelly. They didn't. Okay. Um, but but basically Paramount had forced them to only look at actors that they had under contract. And one of those actors was William Holden and Holden's breakout role came in 1939 with his performance in a movie called golden boy, which Wilder said he liked, but that was a decade ago and he had yet to have another hit. Holden was already beginning to have alcohol issues at the age of 31 uh, he had gone off to the military and fought in World War II and came back and basically was only starring, not even starring, he was like the second or third lead in very like mediocre movies. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of a, a streak of unlucky movies. So when he got the script for for Sunset Boulevard, he was very excited. Uh, Wilder said that he sent him whatever script they had at 1 p.m. And he was at Wilder's house by 3 p.m. saying he would do the movie. Uh, for the last two major roles in the movie of Max the Butler and Betty Schaefer, the aspiring writer, Wilder would cast Eric Von Stroheim and Nancy Olsen. Olsen. Uh, Von Stroheim had previously worked with a duo, duo of Brackett and Wilder on Five Graves to Cairo. But before that, before being an actor, he was also a talented director during the silent film era. Uh, for the silent film fan, for the silent film fans out there, you'll kind of know him about uh, infamous making of his masterpiece, Greed. Uh, the mm -hmm. silent psychological drama that was made in 1924 and von, von Stroheim's original cut for this movie was eight hours long. Uh, that was before MGM came in and fired him and they cut it down to only two and a half hours long. Uh, his original film was only seen by apparently 12 people and has since been classified as a, as a lost film in 1999 TCM would re reconstruct pieces of the film they had found 
into a four hour version. But the fiasco of Greed was based at the beginning of the end for his career as a director. He would only direct a handful of movies afterwards, one of which was called Queen Kelly that starred Gloria Swanson. And the scene in Sunset Boulevard where Joe and Norma are watching Norma's movie was a scene from Queen Kelly. Oh, nice. Um, coincidentally enough, Swanson would fire Von Stroheim from Queen, Queen Kelly because she was also a producer on the movie and she was dissatisfied with his direction of it. <laughs> Needless to say, Von Stroheim was the perfect choice to play Max the butler. <laughs> um, but the newcomer of the cast was Nancy Olson. Olson originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She had moved to LA after a few successful years in her local theater community while she was in college. And she would move to LA and attend UCLA. And according to her interview with the Hollywood reporter in, in 2020, uh, also said that one night during a school production, a talent scout from Paramount approached her about doing a screen test for the studio. She was about 20 years old, I believe, at the time. Uh, her screen test would be with George Reeves, who would later be famous oh, wow. for playing Superman in the TV show in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, they basically assigned her immediately to a seven-year contract uh, that would allow her to act in Paramount movies while also attending college part-time. <laughs> Uh, soon she would star opposite Randolph Scott in the Western Canadian Canadian Pacific. And while Scott was a great Western star, I think it's safe to say, if you know what his age was, the age was this time, he was a little too old to be the love interest of Nancy Olson. <laughs> uh, she was 30 years younger than him, I believe. Um, when starting at Paramount, Olson would be eyed for a big role in the studio project from a, from a prestigious director. And that was Samson Delilah from Cecil B. DeMille which is the movie that DeMille is filming in Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. uh, he would later cast Hey Lamar instead of Olsen because Olsen said she felt like she wasn't suited for the role of Delilah. Uh, she said she was al always seen as the wholesome all-American girl and even her nickname in, like, growing up was Wholesome Olsen. <laughs> um, but as... Yeah, probably not who you want for your for Delilah, Delilah character. Yeah. Um, but during this time, there was another director eyeing her for a role and that was Billy Wilder. Olsen said that as a young woman on the lot, countless men would make passes at her. However, the one man who showed an interest in her that wasn't romantic was Wilder. She says that he would see her around the studio commissary and would ask her questions about her life and everything she was doing. And Olsen later realized that he was essentially auditioning her for the role of Betty Schaefer. She told the Hollywood reporter that he was writing about a young woman who was an aspiring writer and therefore the actress playing the part could not just be a little starlet on the lot. You had to, you had to somewhere believe that that writing or that writing was of interest to her. And I think it was the way I, I articulated myself that got me to part. And not long after these talks with Wilder, she got a call from the studio's talent office telling her that her next role would be for Wilder Sunset Boulevard. And now with a has-been actress, a mediocre actor, a failed Hollywood director, <laughs> a fresh off the boat actress and a script that wasn't complete, the production of Sunset Boulevard began. And with that, let's move to favorite scenes. So, Thomas, I mean, here's the thing. I could break down this movie scene by scene, but I'm, not, I'm trying my best not to yes, do that. Yes, here. I tried. You know, I think sometimes with these movies that are classics, I think I'm even more conservative with the scenes. But um, but I'm, I'm just going to when, when when people like say Sunset Boulevard, I'm just going to bring up the ones that that like immediately pop into head. But the, yeah. the first one for me is the is is the meeting with the with the chimp funeral like that's that's when you just get like blown away by the production design yeah. i think um yeah 
and you you truly like enter this this whole other world and, yeah. it, and it's and it's very uh you know it's it's like it's like you know these these great literary mansions of old like miss haversham yeah. or, or yeah. something you know where like absolutely nothing has been touched yeah. i always think of I'm, I'm sure whoever did the imagineering out. for for tower of terror like watch this movie too but just this idea of like golden age hollywood but with a layer of cobwebs and dust over it um mm-hmm. and then you you know you, you you have no idea what's going on and, and they're talking about coffins and she's talking about like oh he put him by the fire he used to love to play with the fire <laughs> and then he and then he pulls back the sheet and it's a dead chimp yeah, and you're a, like yeah. oh my gosh who is this woman yeah yeah and but it's a great scene because you kind of get what's at play here is that he's like, hey, aren't you the old silent film actress? Norma yeah, Desmond? used to be big one already. Big. One of the most iconic quotes right yeah, there. Used to be big. I am I'm, big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. <laughs> um, and but but I love the way Gloria Swanson how to put this. I love the way she chews her words, but I, the, I love the way she delivers her dialogue. It's the mm-hmm. like. She goes, ah, writer, words, more words, huh? Like the way mm-hmm. she just, it's it's not it's not how I'm making it's not 1930s gangster, but like it's like the it's this just like lingering, like oozing something like like allure that's coming out of her. It's like she she's this mythical character, like she mm-hmm. she she's putting on this act as this mythical being, it almost feels like, um, and that scene really kind of establishes her in the moment and another thing i like that i i usually do not like in movies a lot of the time is narration mm-hmm. and specifically a narration from a dead character i think it's like a lot of times it's like a cheap way to like do something but mm-hmm. sunset boulevard is one of my favorite films and i love the way they do it in this movie and i think it's because the narration really adds to the atmosphere of the movie it's not just exposition for exposition's sake it's like you're saying when when he's describing walking up to the house he mentioned he name checks great expectations and like it reminds me of one of those old houses from those old literary mm-hmm. books or whatever like it it's prose like it's it's almost poetry the way he's writing these they the, the trio are writing these words and descriptions it's not just like Oh, and then I I needed to get away from the collect creditors, and my car was there. Like he, they they add something that's that's poetic about it all is the thing mm-hmm. which I I really love. And, I, and speaking of a scene, talking about introduction scenes, you have the introduction scene with with Glor- with Norma Desmond and, and Joe, but I also love the intro scene with with uh with Joe and Betty at the uh, Paramount mm-hmm. Executives uh, office, and and that's when you kind of see. Like he's when she's like, oh yeah, I really liked you because I, I always heard you had talent. He was like, oh that was last year. This year I'm trying to make a living, and <laughs> I think that scene is what really establishes the industry as a character, basically. Oh where, yeah. Where this this producer just like, it's how can we make a quick buck? It's like he like Joe comes in with this idea of like it's I don't know if it's a passionate idea, but he thinks it will sell is the is the thing with right. this baseball yeah. movie, and and no, it's ba- his car payment. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And Betty's like, oh no, oh, he's like, it's made out of hunger, is what she says, which yeah. means like he doesn't care about it. he's just trying to make a quick buck. And then you have the producer's like, oh, but what if what if we made it a musical? And and it, and it was Betty Grable instead of 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 uh Alan Ladd, and we had a couple numbers, and it's like it happened in the bullpen or whatever. Um 
Well, and then it's great, you know, the way he's obviously bluffing when he's like, oh, Fox, Fox really yeah, wants Zanuck, it. And so, really wants it. And so then the way he turns it down is like, well, you know what? Fox is getting a great pick. It's just like, that's <laughs> such a. Looks like Fox got themselves a baseball picture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then and the next scene when, they, when he meets Norma, kind of a line to go back to that when I think he says in the narration, he goes, last movie I wrote was about. Oh, no, he, he tells Norma. The last movie I wrote mm-hmm. was about Okies and the Dust Bowl. You wouldn't know it because it came out there on a submarine or whatever it was. It was just yeah. like completely different movie. And I'm just like, that sounds like Hollywood still today. It's like you wrote one thing and it turns into another thing, basically. Um, but yeah, so what's a what's another scene that you like in this in this film? Uh, the, I mean, I think the next one's got to be the the New Year's party. That's that's really that like sequence when it, in general is just from top when to it bottom. all comes kind of crashing down. You're 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 you know, and and like you said, he's he's narrating with hindsight and, and we get yes. kind of the and so he keeps being like, how was I so dumb to not see what was happening? But it's all leading up and, and, and you, you understand kind of how sad and lonely she is. But it's yes. not until she's been talking about, oh, we've got to get you dressed up for this party. And he's just expecting this like big shindig with yeah. all yeah with all her friends all coming her wax, out and, all, the, all the wax works yeah and then it's like no she she has no one except for you and while you thought you were here milking her for money you were letting her fall in love with you <laughs> and yeah. now you're screwed he's like son of a yeah he <laughs> yeah and and it's just that great reveal and you're like and he, yeah it's like of course you should have seen this like she she's been dressing you she's been doing all these things to get you ready for this like she's she's fallen for you in some way you're this young man in her her uh in her web basically like she the way at this point is that she kind of turns into this like like spider is how i would describe norma at some point it's like Mm -hmm. and it's the scene afterwards when he when he comes back and he kind of essentially accepts what's happening he accepts Mm -hmm. being with her and the way she like embraces him is like she literally puts her claws into him essentially Mm -hmm. the way her fingers are like talons or something um but before that again i love it where it's like every time this is happening right beforehand right before he's brought back in by norma is that he has a scene with betty in some way where he sees the the romanticized version of hollywood of like this young girl really wants to make like wants to make good stories or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. and she brings this um, youthfulness out of this jaded screenwriter. So the scene when they're in the bathroom um, at the new year's Eve party, where like they're flirting really hard, which is like somewhat surprising because you've just been saying, Oh yeah, she's engaged to be married to one of his best friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the way they're like, almost flirting to kiss one another and like talking in their voices or whatever it's it's Mm -hmm. they get intimate very quickly is the thing and it doesn't it does i don't know if it doesn't really feel odd it feels just like they have like they almost have instant chemistry is the thing in my in my viewpoint Um, yeah it's 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 almost it's presented to us almost as this like immediate I, I do like the way they kind of depict the friend he's, he's like he's an ad so like he's not he's not as intellectual as you know it, it's yeah, kind of yeah. this thing like they're they're just immediately mashing wits and it's like yeah. well they're both writers so yeah. they're like on each other's level intellectually he's just an ad all he <laughs> all he worries about is extras he just keeps talking about extras yeah that's all he cares about and like everyone at the party is probably just like 
their dresser like the, it's the it's the it's like all low end studio people basically mm-hmm. um but he's because he's the ad he's like he he he's the ringleader of the group basically uh mm-hmm. with it um but yeah i i love kind of what they do with that character or what in that in that kind of scene uh, the 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 way it especially you know the stuff at the mansion you brought mentioned great expectations but like the way it all kind of plays out like a gothic horror like you're saying with like the the claws and everything i think i think the the you know this this one is so remembered for kind of the opening with the twist or opening with the murder or whatever but i think the the great kind of twist reveal of this movie is finding out about max yeah um which you know you you called her like a spider and and that that's the this whole time he's been playing with this like i can i can get out of this when i need to i'm gonna play this until it's not useful for me anymore and then i'm gonna get out of it and then you find out that max has been trapped there (laughs) his entire life and uh, like brainwashed into this position of 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 servitude like he's they they are divorced and this man is still like i'm i'm gonna be here i'm gonna protect her no matter what and and that's the fasting part is that with the character of max with the character of betty it's the two sides of the coin it's the like who is joe gonna be is he gonna be Max? Is he gonna be Betty? Is mm-hmm. he gonna be the writer in Hollywood who's passionate about his work, or is he gonna be basically obsessed with pleasing this woman to a point where it it drains everything out of you and that becomes your life mission? Like, and Joe and Max, like they have a very unique relationship because I feel like they get along with one another, but I think Max gets along with him because he knows he pleases Norma. And he doesn't want to upset Norma, mm-hmm. but like just the way they had the moments when like like Max always lets Joe know what's going on for the most part. He doesn't really hide that much. It's like yeah, yeah. He's like I I write the postcards. Yeah, I write the postcards. I was director, but it's the, it's the scene when like when he comes up at, at the Paramount when he's like they were after the car, they weren't after her. Like that's what that's what that's that's what all the phone calls were about. And he tells Joe immediately, and it's like we can't tell her, or it's mm-hmm. like. When when Joe when when the when the creditors show up at the house and Max is like yeah I told them you weren't here but they found the car and mm-hmm. it's and it's like there's not much I can do about it um but yeah it's it's like um they have this unique relationship and again it's like is the flip of the coin what what's Joe gonna be and then Joe by the end essentially chooses to be neither of them. Mm-hmm. is that the industry he's basically seen what it can do with norma he's seen what it can do to people and it's just gonna be this dark hole he goes down and he tries he basically he decides to b- try to break betty's heart in order for her to forget about him and not ever question what happened here again mm-hmm. um and yeah that back that back part basically is just i think masterful every kind of step of the way the way they're saying everything. And again, you know the ending of the movie. You know he's going to get shot and wind up in the pool, but you're fascinated by how it all leads to that is the thing. And Wilder, Brackett, and Marshman, and actors and everything really build towards that moment. And Swanson, to her credit, gives this really complex performance. Oh, yeah. Like, I, th- I mean, people say this is probably one of the best, like, I think it's one of the best performances of the 50s at least. But some will argue it's one of the best female performances of of 
Hollywood history because she she has these moments of charm. Like I love their kind of the sequence when they're like actually kind of as a couple, basically, when they're like playing around in, in the mansion, she's like doing her little shows as Charlie Chaplin or whatever. Like she seems happy and joyous and then mm-hmm. on a dime just turns into this unstable character and it's not Mm -hmm. i don't think it's where it's like it's becoming this crazy woman trope or whatever i think they build to it very nicely because it's it's it feels authentic because it's basically saying this industry has turned her into this essentially and Mm -hmm. we have and we have cast her aside as they show it when she shows paramount this great sequence of her at paramount where she gets this beautiful welcoming and then quickly cast aside again. And she just, she spirals into madness. And then you get to this, the, again, the final sequence of her in the mansion walking down the stairs. And it's, it's like, it's a masterful performance from her. You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices. The masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbankses, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobodies. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are writing words, words, more words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. you wake up the monkey. Get out! Max! All right, and that leads us to Onset Life. So, since Wilder, Brackett, and Marshman only had 61 pages written for the movie, uh, <laughs> the majority of the film was shot in chronological order. Uh, Olson, Nancy Olson recalls that the first scene she ever shot was her first scene in the movie. And when talking about the movie, she said it was kind of a joyous set to be on. Even though she didn't have many scenes with Eric von Stroheim, she kept a close eye on him. She said that he was really wonderful, but distant and professional. She said every morning he would say, good day, Miss Olsen. And she would say, Tell, uh, call me Nancy. And he goes, okay. Or, he goes, or basically, okay, Miss Olsen or whatever. <laughs> um, she also said that he would always be on set watching Billy Wilder direct the movie. He would offer several ideas uh, for the movie. Uh, they, he reported that he offered the idea to show Queen Kelly, which is the movie he made with Gloria Swanson uh, mm-hmm. in the screen room scene. He, I think he did make the suggestion that he was the one that wrote the fan mail to Norma. That was not the original idea behind that. So he added that. The one idea that he did suggest that Wilder turned down was that Eric von Stroheim wanted a scene where he was washing glorious or washing Norma Desmond's underwear was what it was. He wanted to show how how far he had fallen is what he was saying. <laughs> uh, and speaking of von Stroheim and Olsen, uh, they were the two actors that actually wore their own clothes for the film. Costume designer uh, for the film was legendary Edith Head. Uh, if there is a Mount Rushmore for costume designers in film, 
head is probably the first one to go up there. <laughs> um, allegedly, she was the most interviewed costume designer ever, being used on multiple publicity tours for films that she worked on. Um, after talking with Wilder, they both agreed that Olsen should just wear her own clothes since she was still so new to the industry and she hadn't been tarnished by the Hollywood style. Head also worked closely with Swanson for Norma Desmond's look because Head knew that Swanson had lived that life of a silent movie star. Swanson believed that Norma would be pretty knowledgeable about the recent trends in fashion, but she would be just a few years off. Edith Head basically said she was wearing... It was 1950s, so she wasn't wearing 1950 fashion. She was wearing 1945 fashion. Was kind of mm. the idea. Mm-hmm. Swanson believed that a character like Norma would want to dress like a much younger woman. So when Wilder initially wanted to age up Swanson to appear much older than William Holden, Swanson said that Norma would try to ha- try her hardest to look younger and not older. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, she she suggests they try and make Holden look younger. Wilder agreed. And that was what they would do. And when looking back on the project in terms of the look of it, uh, Edith Head said that it was the most challenging of her career, specifically regarding Norma Desmond's look. Uh, When going more in depth in this comment, she said, because Norma Desmond was an actress who had been become lost in her own imagination. I tried to make her look like she was always impersonating someone else. While Swanson's daughter would say that Gloria would come home and act like Norma Desmond, essentially never breaking character swanson would say later in life that it was also a wonderful set to be on and that she was so full of love and joy that each day of the set she would sing in her car because she was so happy (laughs) to go to work uh for the film's locations almost the entire production was filmed at paramount studios uh olsen recalls one of the days of filming on the lot uh it was her kiss scene with william holden William Holden decided to bring his wife along to set that day. And while they shot the kiss scene, Billy Wilder either didn't call cut as a joke or was just simply letting the scene play out. But all of a sudden you heard this female voice in the background yell cut. And it was William Holden's wife who apparently was (laughs) not happy with the long kiss they were having. While they could have shot the film in color, Wilder and his director of photography, John F. Seitz, decided to shoot the film in black and white, which was what they had done six years earlier on Double Indemnity together. Wilder had worked with Seitz several times, so he gave him free reign on the film. Uh, For a good bit of the interior shots in the mansion, Seitz would use chalk or dust to throw up in front. He'd throw up in front of the camera to give this mustiness to the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And speaking of camera tricks... I think it's easy to assume what the most difficult camera shot shot was in this movie. The the end scene? No, no, it's not that scene. It's the opening pull sequence of of Holden's face. Looking down. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Wilder wanted to see Holden's face in the pool as if a fish was looking up at him. Uh, Initially, they used a specially constructed box that was lowered under the water, but it didn't get the results that Wilder wanted. They would experiment more, and the trick that they would eventually, the trick that would eventually work, would be by putting a mirror at the bottom of the pool and pouring the camera down to catch the reflection of Holden and the policeman. Uh, oh, interesting! On top. So that's how I did it. So that's why it's like hold uh, the policemen are kind of distorted mm-hmm. uh, in the background. For the exteriors of Norma's house, they would actually not use a house on Sunset Boulevard. The house was actually right off of Wilshire Boulevard and Crenshaw, not terribly far from Paramount Studios. Mm. So some crazy stuff on this house. Uh, It was built in 1924 at the cost of $250,000, which is about 
four million dollars today. I think it was like twenty five bedrooms. It was something insane. Oh my god! Uh, it was built by architect Thomas Beverly Kim Jr., who would later commit suicide at his office only a few years after the completion of this house. Uh, Keem had built it for William O. Jenkins, a wealthy American who had made most of his money in Mexico. Jenkins, initially from Shelbyview, Tennessee, would move to Mexico and work as a mechanic. While in Mexico, he would serve in the Mexican Revolution, and during the war, he would be kidnapped by revolutionary forces and held for ransom. Once he was released, he was soon arrested for faking the kidnapping, but was never convicted. Uh, he would make his money in Mexico on banking, theaters, sugar, and hosiery, like yeah, legwear. Uh, mm-hmm. Jenkins and his family would then move into the house in 1925 and would then move out in 1926, leaving the house vacant for almost a decade. And in the neighborhood, it would be dubbed by locals as the Phantom House. In 1936, the house was bought by J. Paul Getty, Okay. Who would, who would then lose it in one of his divorces to one of his five ex-wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, miss, uh, his ex-wife would live there, live in the house, and she would give permission to, to Paramount to film there. One report says as a condition for the film rental, they would have to build her a sw- swing pool uh, for her front yard or, or, or the backyard or whatever it was, um, which became very important to the movie. Uh, five years later, another studio would come knocking to shoot at the house, and that would be warner brothers for their film rebel without a cause so the end of rebel when natalie wood uh and dean and Sal- salmonio is what it is yeah um they're in like an abandoned pool it's yeah. the pool from sunset boulevard wow it's from that house okay uh but while nearing production on rebel getty mrs getty uh was about to sell the property uh which was being protested by neighbors of Windsor Square, the neighborhood where the house was at, uh, they feared that it would be torn down and some atrocity would be built there. And guess what? They were right. The house was sold in 1957 and demolished in 1957 for a white marble office building that still stands today. And I looked at the address. I was like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this building is because it's not too far from like USC. What's the, what's the, all right, I gotta look it up. Look at Irving Irving Boulevard. It's Irving Boulevard Sunset or Irving Boulevard in Wilshire. It's like Irving Wilshire Crenshaw. You will know exactly where it's at when you, when it shows up. Because when I saw, oh yeah, I know exactly where this is. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, right down from like the Wiltern. Yes, and you see the big the big kind of like office building right off of like there's an abandoned lot next to it, and then the big office building where Crenshaw meets Wilshire. Where Crenshaw meets Wilshire. Okay. They go to Street View. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the house was. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. That's a that's an ugly building. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and right around the corner is because Windsor Square is where the the mayor lives in L.A. And they because I think the mayor will always live in the Getty House is what's supposed to be in the Getty mm-hmm. House is right around the corner. So yeah, um, but while the exterior was a real house, the interior was not. The interior of the house was designed by Hans Dreyer, who had been working since the silent era in Hollywood. He'd also been commissioned to do interior design projects for several movie star homes, including the house of Mae West, the original choice for Norma Desmond. Um, that also built they'd also built an exact replica of Schwab's pharmacy at Paramount, and for those that 
Schwab's pharmacy, the idea of that is so lost on most people nowadays of what a pharmacy used to be. Now it's just like you go mm-hmm. and get you don't get your medication. But pharmacies back in the day were like basically hu- like social hubs, essentially, mm-hmm. um, for younger people. And Schwab's at this point in Hollywood, where you can get you can get get food, you can get your your medicine, you get a malt, or you can get anything you want, basically. Uh, was a hangout for soup for movie stars and writers and directors and every everyone in between in Hollywood. Um, so reports say the final scene to be shot was actually the final sequence of the movie when Swanson makes her descent down the staircase of the cavernous mansion. Swanson went barefoot during the scene when she walks on the stairs because she was afraid if she wore high heels, she might trip and fall. Um, it's understandable. And she had to look up at the camera so she couldn't look down at her feet. So. Multiple reports say that the, once the scene was finished, Swanson burst into tears and the cast and crew applauded her for the performance. But everyone around Paramount was beginning to hear that Swanson was doing an amazing job on set. Apparently, watching dailies for the film became an activity a lot of people were doing at Paramount because they wanted to see just how good she was in the role. Yeah. Uh, that's something, yeah, I, I, you sent me one of the original reviews. And I was really surprised to see that. And it was like, turns out Gloria Swanson's as good as we've been hearing. I was yep. like, wow, they really have just been like, like Hollywood gossip has just been exactly yes. the same. You think that's a Twitter exclusive thing, but it's not. <laughs> no, no people, people, because this became apparent, as I said later, it's like it became apparent what the movie was about. So people began to talk. And mm. while it might seem like the film was joyous on set for many, the film's 12 weeks of production would lead to the ending of one of Hollywood's most prolific filmmaking duos of the time. And that leads us to Aftermath. So I, I teased earlier of why Wilder and Brackett break up here. I assume during the editing process, it could have been during shooting, but I think during the editing process, at least director Billy Wilder and longtime part writer, writer and producing partner, Charles Brackett, reportedly almost came to blows over the inclusion of one particular sequence. And it feels so like a minuscule thing to fight Mm. over. The sequence in question was the montage of Norma Desmond changing her appearance in order to prepare for her comeback after meeting Cecil B. DeMille about oh, yeah, like getting the plastic surgery yeah. and everything. Yeah. All that stuff. Brackett thought that the sequence was cruel and its emphasis on what age had done to Norma. But Wilder insisted it was essential to show how driven she was in her pursuit of youth. Wilder would have the scene included in the film, but he would soon begin to privately tell close friends that he would not make any more films with Brackett. And once the film was released, Wilder would tell Brackett he would end their partnership, which shocked Brackett and he did not expect would be a thing. He didn't, he didn't see it coming, basically. Mm-hmm. Wilder would very would not really speak about it ever again. And Brackett, they, they, they basically never speak poorly of one another after this. But that's what they're saying was the reason why they broke up. Hmm. But as of right now, the movie wasn't finished yet. Once a cut of the movie was finished, they would soon test the movie in late 1949 in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, This version of the movie had a very different opening. Before cutting to Holden in the pool, the movie started with Holden's body being inside of a morgue with several other bodies. 
and soon all of the bodies would begin to talk to Holden about how they came to be at the morgue. <laughs> Apparently, the audience began to laugh hysterically, and for the rest of the movie, we're confused of whether or not this movie was a drama or a comedy because of that opening scene. They would then take the movie to Poughkeepsie, New York with the same exact outcome. They would then show it a third time with the morgue scene completely cut out and a shorter poolside opening scene. And it seems like because of all this, they might have shot the pool scene here, like the full on pool scene here. I'm not entirely sure. But I've also read that these poor tests delayed the film for six months in wow. post-production. But as I said, as Sunset Boulevard was nearing its release, the murmurs around Hollywood began to get louder people were becoming aware that this movie was a takedown of the movie industry. And the industry was beginning to hear that Gloria Swanson in her return role was a tour de force as Norma Desmond. Paramount would hold a private screening for various studio heads and specially invited guests. After the viewing of the film, kind of the audience was an uproar essentially. And were were completely shook by this movie. <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck apparently knelt and kissed the hem of Gloria Swanson's skirt Swanson later said that she was looking for Mary Pickford after the, after the screening, wanting to talk with her, but she was told by someone that she can't show herself, Gloria. She's too overcome. We all are. She's apparently in the bathroom crying <laughs> about the movie. Swanson would say that she that basically all these older actors, it weirdly gave them hope because it showed them that even in their old age, they could possibly have a role like Gloria Swanson did in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if they weren't let out the pasture, they still had something left, essentially. Yeah, because I feel like at that time, you know, you had the the like the like older you you yeah. you know it's it's that classic kind of Hollywood trope of you're either twenty or you're sixty, especially if you're mm -hmm. a, a woman. But um, there was also like you didn't really transition if you were a star. And then all the old people were played by character actors. Yep. And so you didn't really transition into becoming a character actor. You were a star and then you weren't a star anymore. Correct. And she said that she believes the movie helped certain actors sleep at night knowing that it existed because it showed what their lives were like. <laughs> uh, however, one person was furious about this movie at this private screening. And that would be... Louis B. Mayer, the famous movie mogul of MGM. Apparently in front of everyone at the screening, Mayer reportedly said something along the lines of to Wilder, uh, you have disgraced the industry that made you and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. <laughs> and according to Nancy Olson, she said that someone told her that Wilder simply said to Mayer in front of everyone else, go fuck yourself. And that nice. was it. <laughs> The film would get its world premiere at Radio City Music Hall on August 10th, 1950. After seven weeks, it made over $1 million at Radio Music Hall alone, oh, making, it, making it one of the theater's most successful movies up to that point. But while it was doing well in major cities like New York and Los Angeles, it wasn't doing well in the rural parts of America, the, the middle America. So what did Paramount do? They put Gloria Swanson on a train and toured her around 30 cities to promote this movie <laughs> for several months in hopes to attract people to go see it. It would help in certain areas, but it wouldn't help everywhere. Uh, it would eventually make $2.4 million is what I said, which means that almost half that movie came from Radio City Music Hall. Um, maybe that's true. I don't know. 
And while it was still a box office success, critics also loved the film when it was released. The most, I think, prophetic reviews was from Hollywood Reporter that said uh, that future generations would set themselves the task of analyzing the durability and greatness of the film. It said that schools will teach this movie because every aspect of the film is perfect and they will examine fr the movie frame by frame. Another review said that in the future, the Library of Congress would be glad to have it in its archives, a print of Sunset Boulevard. However, the New Yorker would give it a negative review, saying it was basically just a German idea and nothing more. And no, <laughs> that wasn't from Pauline Kael. Um, she, however, would later say that it was almost too clever, but at its best in its cleverness. The film would receive 11 Oscar nominations at the 23rd Academy Awards. It would eventually win three of those Oscars, including Best Screenplay for Brackett, Wilder, and Marshman, Best Art Direction, and Best Original Score. The film would be one of the only 12 films to have nom acting nominations in every acting category, with Swanson, Holden, Von Stroheim, and Olsen all receiving one each. Von Stroheim refused to attend the Oscars because he believed he should have been nominated for a lead role. <laughs> okay, come on. Yeah. But the reason why Sunset Boulevard only won three Oscars instead of more was because it was the same year as another showbiz movie. Can you guess what showbiz movie, Thomas? Not movies, but theater. All About Eve? It was All About Eve. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that would receive... Also a good one. Also a good one. That would also receive 12 Oscar nominations and include six wins, including Best Picture and Best Director. My wow. question, My question, Thomas, is... What should have won? Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> Those are two fantastic movies. And, le man. and let's put in perspective, too, the, sa the same year was also Born Yesterday. Two other movies that were not nominated for Best Picture that were in the Best Director race, The Asphalt Jungle by John Huston mm -hmm. and The Third Man by Carol Reed with Orson Welles oh, and man. Joseph F. Cotton. Wow. Uh, yeah. Maybe sunset boulevard but i'm not mad about all about eve yeah i think i think that's one where i get it in the moment i think if you look at time i think sunset boulevard has gained more importance with time and all about mm -hmm. eve while still a fantastic movie hasn't fully reached the same levels but two like powerhouse performances from bay davis and gloria swanson in this in, in both these movies uh, and as I said, the film legacy, the film's legacy has continued to grow in 2020. The film celebrated 70th anniversary and Nancy Olson, who is now retired from acting at the age of 94 is the film's sole surviving cast member. Um, she said that before sunset Boulevard even was released, she realized that Hollywood was not for her. Uh, in her interview with Hollywood reporter in 2020, she said that there's a distortion that isn't real in Hollywood you're not treated like who you really are. You are, you are exaggerated. She said that she told Paramount that she wanted to be taken off their talent list before this movie <laughs> was even released. But after the release of the Sunset Boulevard, she said the pressure for her to return was unbelievable. And while she would do a few more, mo few more roles and kind of come back occasionally, she had a lot of family films in the 60s and 70s with the absent-minded professor for Disney, as oh, well yeah. as Son of Flubber. She's also in the Pollyanna and the Snowball Express. Uh. Um, but she said even in nowadays, when she goes out, she's still recognized as Betty Schaefer from Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> uh, for Swanson, her comeback was short-lived. 
She said that the most the most the scripts offered to her were just poor versions of Norma Desmond, and she would virtually retire from films after this movie. Brackett and Wilder said would break up, but they would both go on to have successful careers. Brackett won an Oscar for his screenplay for the 1953 version of Titanic, because that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also produced Marilyn Monroe's breakthrough film, Niagara. Um, Holden would become one of the best actors of his generation, in my opinion, winning an Oscar for his performance in a later film by Wilder called Stalag 17. But he also starred in such films as Sabrina, Picnic, Bridge in the River Kwai, The Wild Bunch, and Network. Nice. He turned around from being a guy who didn't have a, a hit movie in 10 years. Sunset Boulevard really kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, DM Marshman Jr. What happened to him? He only wrote, I think, two more movies. He would pass away at, in 2015 at the age of 92, I believe is what it was. Wow. But he won himself an Oscar. Um, Wilder, of course, was going to write and direct such classics as Some, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment was the prosecution and countless others. And even with all those classics, many argue that sunset Boulevard might be his greatest achievement. So Thomas worked about this movie. Uh, You know, I think Wilder's kind of wit comes through that he's got this, this like black vision of the world that I think we talked about a little bit in an apartment, but it's, it's, you know, whether he's doing a comedy or he's doing a drama there's always this kind of of dry pessimism, but but with a but kind of presented in a in a ironic humorous way. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, you you know it immediately when you see it, and that's that's something we also talked about with Witness and the Prosecution. You're you're watching, and you're like, oh, this is a Billy Wilder movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that fits, I think, so perfectly in this weird little world that is created specifically for this movie you know it's it's we talked about the production design and and kind of the the performance of it all but it truly does feel like every you understand every time he leaves the house behind because it feels like he's living in two different worlds yes yeah and and i think all of that comes together to create this uh it's just so well constructed from from Mm -hmm. every aspect and we don't really talk about this that much, but I love his sequences when Holden and or when Holden and Nancy Olsen are at Paramount together at night, right? Mm-hmm. Writing the movie they're making mm-hmm. like you get kind of what it made a nicer version of what it would be like to write ide- write a movie with Wilder and Brackett where they're just mm-hmm. bouncing ideas off one another and Holden being kind of like, oh, yeah, this this scene's going to go great when we add a bunch of music to drown out this terrible dialogue, like that feels like something that they would say while writing a, a script or whatever. Um, and I love, they're kind of like walking through Paramount again, talking about a different world when, when her, when him and Betty, you're talking about like, she's from a movie making family, her, her parents did this and her grandmother was a stunt woman or whatever. Like you kind of see he's falling in love with the, the good side of filmmaking again, but when he sees Norma, he's always reminded of what it can be if you're not paying attention. What mm-hmm. Almost like what's really beneath the surface of this industry is what happens with Norma. And someone like Wilder and then the, like, I mean, it feels like a ballsy move to say that in 1950. Like, like at this point, Hollywood hadn't really been fully meta yet in terms of like their view of themselves. And he's really, tr- really taking the task, it feels like of what they've done with people is the thing. And now it feels kind of like nothing, 
if that makes sense. Like it just feels kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, it's just a movie. But at that point, it was kind of a, a daring thing, I guess you could say, to do. Um, and it just feels like everyone is at the top of their game from Holden and Swanson to, to down. Um, but yeah, I, I'll ask you this because we'll see if this where this fits at. But we haven't even talked about Waxman's score yet. Oh, yeah. I think there's moments that are just, I think, classic. Like the opening sequence of the score is one that I think one of my favorite musical moments, like, like score moments in a movie is mm-hmm. the long, ta- long shot of just driving down Sunset Boulevard with that score. Yeah. And I think, you know, to talk about kind of the other genres that are involved in this movie, I think he's scoring for all of them. Like it's a yes. little bit romance. It's a little bit noir. It's a little bit gothic horror. It It's just it's all there. Like he he understands and hits on on all of it. Yep. He said that basically his theme for Norma Desmond was based on a tango because he, he was inspired by the Rudolph Valentino stuff of the dance floor or whatever. Mm-hmm. When like Joe Gillis had this bebop theme, this more kind of modern theme, essentially. And then mm-hmm. when it came to the ending, they he pulled from like um, Salome, I guess, like the opera or whatever. Like he pulled kind of no, like sequences to reference kind of this ending, like walking down to a ballroom type thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a great score. I, I, I might, there might be a few moments I want to nitpick maybe. Um, but that leads to what did not, anything not work, Thomas. Um, I don't, I don't know that I complete, like I, I buy into it from a like, Oh, it's old school Hollywood uh sort of way but but we were talking earlier about kind of how quickly they gel uh-huh. at the new year's party it's too quick yeah and it's that it's that kind of old school depiction of of being drunk or just kind of like oh well they're they're drunk mm. so they're kind of acting like this i'm like they had like two drinks yeah they're drunk i think they're drunk i think she could have been drunk he was not drunk yeah I mean, they say the punch bowl is was was heavily spiked, but uh, but but he does kind of the way he's like when he's leaving the room, he's kind of like stumbling a little bit, and it's mm. it's not like oh, I hate when people play like bad drunk in in movies, but um, I mean, Holden was, was, hold was an alcoholic, Thomas. He might I mean, <laughs> I think he knew what being drunk. Hey, was. that still doesn't mean that you know how to play <laughs> play drunk when you're sober. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that that's like I get I, I, I can rationalize it in my head. I can be like, oh, he's just so desperate for for, you know, human interaction yeah, outside yeah, of Norma. Yeah. But on, on her point, it feels like it's not they're not super. It, it, I, I don't know that she's completely fully that, that she's completely fully fleshed out as a character like that. They're mm. really ultimately thinking of her like motivations are her like, why does she fall in love with this guy outside of like him needing to be in love with her kind yeah. of thing? Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's very nitpicky, yeah, but I, yeah. you know, I had to find something. To yeah, present. and my other nitpick. There's moments, and I don't know if, if it's it's how I feel, but there's moments of the score as I as I just praise the score. <laughs> there's moments of the score that feel very old Hollywood. That I wonder, it's it's like an example is when they reveal that Max is actually his her, her ex husband. And the mm-hmm. way they just hammer that with like <laughs> the score and they do it a few times where it's like, yeah, it's like that. It's like almost cliche. And I'm like, do we need it that way? So that that's the only times that I was like, ah, I don't know. It just feels like, cause it's, it's very quiet moments 
And then it's just like, big plot reveal. No, like, dun, dun, dun. And it just feels a little too much sometimes. That's my nitpick is the <laughs> thing. Um, all right. Film facts. So by the late 1990s, most Sunset Boulevard prints were in poor condition. And there's actually, uh, there's, there's no original negative for this film. It's been lost. So basically everything after that has been just like a copy of the original of some, like, I think a positive is what it was. Like they found a, a different version of it. So there's no original copy of this movie anywhere. Similar hmm. thing as Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, there's no original copy of Citizen Kane. It's all, it's everything that's available as copies of the original print. Um, We know that there was a musical based on this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. done by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Initially, Stephen Sondheim tried to do it as well at one point. Um, mm-hmm. But Glenn Close would later play Norma Desmond on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Weston as well, I believe. Uh, uh, I actually just looked no. this up today. Uh, that, Patty Lapone originated the role in the Weston. That's what yeah. it was. You're right. I was like, it's one of the two. Um, but besides a, a musical, there's also a radio play for Sunset Boulevard on September 17th, 1951, with Swanson and Holden playing their roles in the radio play. Oh, wow. Yeah. And while I said Brackett and Wilder had broken up, they had to briefly reunite a year later in October 1951 to face charges they had plagiarized Sunset Boulevard. Former accountant, former Paramount accountant Stephanie Joan uh, Carlson alleged that in 1947 she had submitted to Wilder and Brackett at their request manuscripts of stories both fictional and based on fact that she had written about studio life she claimed that one in particular was called past performance and served as the basis for the script and sued the screenwriters at paramount for a hundred thousand dollars in general damages two hundred fifty thousand dollars in punitive damages seven hundred thousand dollars based on box office returns and an additional three hundred fifty thousand dollars for good measure for a total of 1.4 million dollars um, Carlson's suit was dismissed after two and a half years. Uh, in 1954, a similar suit was filed by playwright Edra Buckler, who claimed material she had written had been the screenplay source. Her suit was also dismissed the following year. I wonder what the truth, if there's truth to any of that stuff <laughs> with that. I mean, there's probably some truth to it. I wonder if they took anything from it. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned was uh, the appearance of Hedda Hopper. In this movie, one of Hollywood's famous gossip columnists plays the gossip columnist, plays herself um, at the end of the movie when she's calling uh, her paper to give them what story mm-hmm. about about uh, Norma Desmond. Uh, initially, the scene was supposed to be Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, who was the other prime Hollywood gossip, gossip journalist at the time. Um, but the reason why initially it was supposed to be both of them, Wilder was actually closer friends with Luella Parsons but he hired Hopper because Hopper actually was an actress before she was a gossip columnist. Mm. Also, some believe that Parsons dropped out knowing that Hedda Hopper would upstage her because she had acting background and Parsons did not. A uh, last thing I had, the name of Norma Desmond comes from one is from Norma Taldridge. I believe is it was an actress that they said was inspired. The inspired Norma Desmond, the De- that was the normal part. The Desmond came from, one of Hollywood's most infamous murders, basically. Um, William Desmond Taylor was this famous producer in the 1920s. Uh, and he was mysteriously murdered in his home in the 1920s. 
and he was good friends with Mabel Norman is what it was. And there's a really, it's still, it's still like a cold case basically. Um, it happened in 1922 and there's a really good book that I liked called cast of killers that breaks down this murder. And it's also going, it's actually, it's actually intercut with the murder and like the earlier stories and King Vador, the director, Mm -hmm. uh, him in like the 1970s trying to research the murder to try to figure out who actually did the murder basically. And so it's cutting back and forth in the book and it's, and it's a, it's a true story. It's basically Vador started writing it as a book and they finished it after he died. Um, but it basically because the murder, Mabel Norman was there at the time before Desmond Taylor was killed. It kind of like ruined her career was the thing. Um, and there's a lot of different like conspiracy theories around who might did the killing. Um, so it's a fascinating story, but, but Desmond comes from, from that. And that leads us to awards, Thomas. So the Beatrice Strait award actor, actress, and lead scenes that, that kills it. All right, limited. Um, is it Buster Keaton? I was gonna say, is it Buster Keaton? I also really like the the agent. Uh, oh yeah, it's just such a fun little. He's like, hey, you know what? I could give you this money, but I think you're gonna write better if you can't make your car payments. <laughs> well, he's just like, hey, we're friends. Like, I'm, I'm not your friend. agent. Forget I'm the ten percent. Yeah. yeah. And then right when Holden's like, kind of gets mad, he's like, maybe you need to find a new agent. I was like, <laughs> I, thought, I'm like I thought we were friends, buddy. What are we doing here? As an actor, he's great. But Buster Keaton, I gotta say this. <laughs> he gets me to laugh with two words. Like, mm-hmm. and we haven't talked about that sequence, but I I, I almost want to go Buster Keaton. All right. I think I, I, th- I think he just like he's memorable to me. And again, everyone else has a little bit of moments, but he just has passed twice. And like I still mm-hmm. like la- because his facial reactions are just perfect. He's you know, he's one that I feel like I've referenced this movie recently, even though I don't really like this movie that much, but um, he's great in, uh, in the good old summertime. He's, he's one that like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. didn't super make the transition into talkies, but anytime he was in a talkie, I still really liked him. Yeah. He got screwed. Not really based off talent, but based off like studio involvement was kind of mm-hmm. the thing is that once he, he gave away creative control for more money and just became a contract player, it was kind of his downfall. Like mm-hmm. when Chaplin kind of stayed away from that, that's why he kind of, I think, continued a little bit more and maybe had a little bit uh, bigger cultural impact for a bit. I think Keaton weirdly is coming around. That makes mm. sense. A hundred years later, I feel like with like the rise of Jackass and them like saying that <laughs> Keaton was a big influence on them. Mm-hmm. And as I see so many like Twitter videos of people being like, what the fuck is Buster Keaton doing in the same? It's, it's like people are shocked at the stuff he put his body he should through. have died. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah. This thing Keaton broke his neck, but didn't realize it for six months. Like those, <laughs> it's like stuff like that or like the house falling or like, mm-hmm. and they're like, and he didn't do it with any CGI. It was all these different things. But yeah, I think Keaton Keaton here really nails his two lines. Sometimes there'd be a little bridge game in the house at a 20th of a cent a point. I get half of her winnings. Once they ran up to 70 cents, which was about the only cash money I ever got. The others around the table would be actor friends, dim figures you may still remember from the silent days. I used to think of them as her waxworks. One diamond, 
one heart. Spade? Pass. Three no trump. Pass. Pass. All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Awards. Sporting actor, actress as the most memorable. I feel like because you said something about Nancy Elson, I feel like you're going to go Eric von Stroheim here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I like her, but I think he is definitely the most memorable of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's such a great character, and I think it's it's yeah. a just a great reveal. You know, if you can put yourself in the position of seeing it for the first time, he's you know he's he's so kind of subservient and just loyal, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, a loyal bus- butler, and then he's like, I was a very successful director and her <laughs> husband, and I gave that all away to serve her. It's just such yeah. an insane plot uh, twist. I mean, you gotta think of that scene when he's like, when when he's when he's show when he basically moves Holden into the house, and he's like. What room was this? He goes, oh, this was the the room of the ex-husband or the mm. ex-husbands. And you're like, wow. wow. He Max is basically setting William Holden up in his former room. What a what a no, cuck. No, two months, yes, two one, months straight well. of dropping yes. the cuck on the podcast. Knowing good well that hold that the swan uh, that Norma is gonna basically make a move He's on. He's made on, me a cuckold. David Lynn Hagen David has Lynn Hagen. cuckolded me. David Lynn Hagen and Joe Gillis, baby. <laughs> you must understand, I discovered her when she was 16. I made her a star, and I cannot let her be destroyed. You made her a star? Yes. I directed all her early films. There were three young directors who showed promise in those days. D.W. Griffith. Says it'd be the middle. And Max von Meiling. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career. Only I found everything unendurable after she'd left me. You see, I was her first husband. All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. It's a tough one. Eh. Here's the thing. I'm going to say Gloria Swanson on this. I'm I I I I see where I could say Billy Wilder, but Same. I'm I'm pretty confidently Gloria Swanson my, on this one. My argument with this is that I think while Wilder is still at the forefront of this movie, I think enough great parts of why the movie's great is split off to other people. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't have Swanson in this role, it doesn't work. Well, yeah. And it's such a bold move for her. Like you were saying, she was completely happy just living her life in New York and working on radio and stage. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you didn't do that. Like you didn't. You had in that point in time, you were on a roster as like this is the character that you play, and then you yep. like didn't mess with that. And and for her to like for for her to even have like the initiative or, or to be willing for someone to come to her and say like we want you to play this like dark take on like an alternate universe version of yourself is you know now now it happens like people yeah. do like you know uh, brendan fraser just did it in the whale like it's it's uh 
but that, that you you didn't do that at the time you, you didn't like tie your you, you didn't kind of weaponize your own reputation mm-hmm. in that way yeah it was like you were a star or you weren't and if you were a star you just made movies that kept showing you as a star yeah and this comes in like nine years not making a movie can you still do it and you're like yeah i can accept the fact i'm a has-been and let me tell let me tell the story of a has-been mm-hmm. and let me show you every wrinkle every uh every bag under my eye every like insecurity or whatever let me show it all and at that point act i said actors and actresses were not really willing to do that in the hollywood system because if you played mm-hmm. one time playing the old like has been fuddy duddy or whatever cons- like character that you were typecast mm-hmm. like that's why like someone like betty davis was always so fascinating because she was able to do this wide range of roles that she was okay with being quote unquote ugly or something. Mm-hmm. And Swanson does that well here. And, and again, to follow up the aftermath of her career is that basically after this role, they're all like, Hey, let's have you keep playing that role. Mm-hmm. And she retires again. And so even w- she basically comes in, it's, it's like, I mean, really it's like, it's like coming in at a retirement of a, la- like, of, of say a, any type player, coming in winning a championship and then walking off the court and being done again. That's what she kind of does here. Mm-hmm. So when Wilder, I think again, with the idea of that Marshman kind of makes the change of, of Oilman, the screenwriter and, and the, and the kind of uh, structure of it all um, with Swanson being so making, the, making the choice and saying her character wouldn't be look older. She'd always try to look younger I mean, that's mm-hmm. the whole dynamic of the movie, basically, is mm-hmm. right there. So that's the big key of why we should pick Swanson. So I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Final questions. If you're casting a modern remake of Sunset Boulevard, which, by the way, Billy Wilder said most of his retirement life was people calling him, asking him to get the rights to remake this movie. And he said, I don't own the rights. Um, but who would you cast in this modern remake of Sunset Boulevard? OK, modern day. All right. Set set in set in the past. Set in the past. Set in the past. Set in. All right. The, the person who came to mind for me and and it's not it's not a super original idea because she's already kind of done a movie kind of like weaponizing her career arc mm-hmm. uh but it 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 could be the movie that she's in could be better but i was renee zellweger was oh judy yeah yeah that's a movie that i think is good and she's good in but yeah i 
she would be i think she would be good in this and um, and you know she's she's got someone who's kind of got a past with like you know having a very successful career but one that was very kind of comes in and shallow out. and, and, and yeah. kind of very tied to her looks and then she had you know that kind of red carpet appearance a few years ago and everybody was like what happened to her nays it was pretty yeah. brutal and um yeah i think i think she's got the acting chops and uh yeah, I think she'd be great in this. I don't disagree and with she, that. And she's got the look. You know, that's that's kind of the thing, even back to, you know, when when she was fresh out of Texas. She she has kind of that Hollywood look yeah. to her. Um You could do yeah. you, you could you could you could go more in depth with that too. It's like it, say she is from Texas and she came out during the silent film era and became this big huge star. Um Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I buy that. I buy that. So what about what about the rest? Do we have any all right. Um, if if we're if this is a modern studio film, I just got to go ahead and say if 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 you're someone who pays attention to casting at all mm-hmm. uh, these days, I'm going to tell you that some studio is going to tell you to put Jacob Elordi as, as the lead in this. Every yeah. article that comes out is like so and so is being chopped around, and Jacob Elordi's in yeah. talks for it. I'm like, Come and on. you're like, and you're not going to. <laughs> I'm not going to cast yeah, Jacob Elordi yeah. in this unless I was really trying to get funding. Um, <laughs> someone I've been I've been kind of boom and bust at various times on this person, but I feel like he's 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 kind of back on the market. Is I think I think this is a Miles Teller role. Okay, yeah, he was just in the Godfather, the offer. Mm, uh, yeah, because there's got to be a little piece of this character that's a that's a that's. A, Piece of shit, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you gotta believe, like, yeah, this guy would totally play this woman for her money. Yeah. Um, I mean, the person who immediately came to mind for me is like a younger Ben Affleck, but um, yeah, I mean, do you, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I like that. Um, do you have a Max or a, a Nancy? Max Stanley Tucci, okay. I was that's a good one. I, I was thinking also Ray Fiennes, another one you could do, but mm. I think, yeah. I think Tucci is a more interesting one there. Um, do you have a Betty? Uh, Betty, I'd, I, I've been someone I've been pushing for a while, and she's finally, finally about to start popping up everywhere thanks to the White Lotus. But I'm all in. You know, I've been all in on Haley Lou Richardson for years. Oh yeah, she's great. Oh, that, she would be great in this role. She'd be great. She she's a fantastic actress. I watch, I rewatched Support the Girls recently, and she is just a just incredible in that movie. Yep. She's she's great. I'm, I'm I'm glad. I know I sound like one of those people. I started listening to that band first, but you know I'm just I'm just happy. I mean, we've been that everybody pu- we, watched. We, we've been pushing her since Edge of Seventeen, so that's yeah. 2016. Mm-hmm. I I loved her in Columbus in 2017. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, I I saw her in un- the Unpregnant, the HBO Max that came out during COVID. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen After Yang yet. I know she's in. I don't know how, how big of a part she has, um, which is the same director as uh, Columbus. Mm-hmm. But good for her. I'm happy. I'm happy that she's white loaded. White Lotus is bringing her out. Yep. And she's only 27, so she'd be perfect. She, she's she's in the she's in the the age range of Hollywood of when the breakout's going to happen is, <laughs> is, is, is right now. Yep. Um, yeah, I like I like this. Uh, I like this cast. I like this cast. Um, I, 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 there was one part I, I, I was thinking 
another kind of like alternative I had in mind was uh oh what's his face? Finn uh Finn Wolfhard. Finn No Finn uh Whitrock. Whitrock. Oh. And Lar Harrier, and then I was like, I think they're both in that Ryan Murphy Hollywood show. So Lar Harrier was. I don't think Finn Whitrock or was in that one. But I don't um, think he was. Let me see. I think I thought of him because I thought yeah, he, he, he's in the American I, Horror Stories and stuff. I thought Jacob Elordi, and then I was thinking, oh, well, Finn Whitrock was in Deep End and was better than <laughs> Jacob Elordi. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got that kind of look to him. He's got yeah, like yeah. an old Hollywood look. And I love Laura Harrier, but she's already done that Netflix uh, what show. About, I feel like it's a what, little too close. Another one that'd be good, maybe, um, is uh, Jake Lacey. Mm. Mm-hmm. A little older, though, but yeah. not a bad one. White Lotus. White Lotus Extended Universe. I have to. I'm, I still have to watch White Lotus. I haven't watched <laughs> White Lotus. He's in, he's in season one. Yeah, Haley yeah. Richardson's in season two. Yeah, yeah. I'll get there. I'll get there. I promise. Um, all right. Next question. Does this film fit with any other genres? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we brought some of them up, but it's definitely like a gothic horror. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with it's a noir, you know, it's a noir, it's, it's a noir for sure. But like, you know, the, the, this set you're it's set in a house and there's all these kind of like dark sexual undertones that nobody wants to talk about. Like that's, yeah. that's so, that's so gothic uh, yeah. horror. Like, um, and yeah noir noir film and then i mean it's got it's got romance to it but um yeah, yeah i think that i think it's definitely playing on that kind of i mean they bring up great expectations it's, yeah. it's it's definitely playing on that kind of those kind of like gothic connections yeah uh but but you know what if what if the gothic old times were just the silent hollywood era yeah um, and one film fact I forgot to mention is that um, on the first cover of the Caillou du Cinema in, in France for, from the French New Wave people, mm-hmm. uh, the cover was William Holden and Gloria Swanson from this movie. That was the first oh, cover wow. of their magazine. So to go with the idea of it being a noir, um, it definitely fits into that category. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's, I mean, the, the base, the foundation of it, Wilder's attempt was to make a movie about the movies mm-hmm. and so that leads me to say how does this film fit with the movies on movies genre i mean i think it's it's one of the groundbreakers like you said uh along with with all about eve it was it was one of the i feel like it it, it arrived at the perfect time you know we're we're 50 years into filmmaking as a as a business as yeah. an industry and as an art form we've seen basically I, generations come in and out of it mm-hmm. and that's enough time for enough people to to learn the ins and outs to learn the ups and downs and then to be able to kind of skewer them um yep you know it was it was all glitz and glamour for a long time and and with kind of the rise of noir in the 40s and and being able to kind of start to look at the dark side of society through Mm -hmm. film this this feels like the first one to be like yeah you know these these movies have been showing you you know what the city streets are like but what if we just turn the camera around there's there's some unsavory stuff going on here too yeah it's like a lot of films will do underbelly like the underbelly of of la or whatever with noirs but this is like let's tackle the 
the most glamorous thing and show you the darkness behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, one motif I didn't mention that I want to mention here that I think runs throughout several of the of the move the movies that are commenting on the commenting on the industry. Um, you see the motif of a pool popping up a lot. <laughs> Because it's such a status symbol exactly that's what it is, is that a lot because there's i think gods and monsters with uh ian mckellen brennan fraser pool is like a big thing in there um a movie called uh the big knife with jack palance it's all set at like i think right right by the pool or whatever um so that pool is is like a status as you said for hollywood for glamour for for money and a lot of the times, I think even Wilder said that he, the idea of the pool was always important, that Joe wanted a place with the pool, and by the end, he got it. Mm-hmm. One way or another, he got the pool, um, and it kind of ends up being the death of him. The The luxury yep. he was after ends up being his resting place in a weird way. Not resting place, but his murder scene, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is it on sunset boulevard i I finally got to do it thomas i finally got to do a long ass script on sunset boulevard (laughs) um i've been waiting i've been waiting for years um and we have several things planned for you now we're doing eight and a half later in the month still try to figure out a few episodes but next week thomas what do we have we're doing the kind of uh surreal comedy uh, very different tone in of what we've been doing yes yeah living in oblivion sorry I jumped living in oblivion it's surrealist comedy but yet one of the most accurate depictions of a film set i think ever ever captured it, on I, film, I, so. I don't know if it was you or my my roommate was, people have told me like yeah like every time i think about like, oh it's living in oblivion that good and then i go back and watch it go yeah it really nails it it really nails yeah. what it's like to be and we'll talk about it next week um is it streaming anywhere? I feel like that's a hard film to find streaming. For a long time, it was hard to find. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, I, I, I remember when that was just so difficult to find. Okay, yeah, it's streaming on Canopy, Tubi, Pluto, Peacock, Freebie. Hey, all right. Damn, Look at guys. That. Four years, five years ago, nothing. It was like Couldn't an even out get of, this on, like, on like hard a, copy. Yeah, it was like an out of print DVD. And now look yeah. at it. Steve Buscemi, Catherine Keener, Dirk Mulroney. Um, and Dilt Maroney's probably best movie, he, best performance he's ever done. We'll talk Peter about Dinklage. Peter Dinklage before he got big. Kevin, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about it all next week. Um, <laughs> also on Patreon coming up at some point, we'll figure it out. We'll be talking about our favorite films from 2022, as Thomas and I and and, and maybe David We're as catching well. Catching up. We're catching up still. Um, it'll happen at some point. Maybe before the Oscars, maybe after the Oscars. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, but stay tuned for all that. For the Patreon patrons, thank you so much for supporting us and helping us with the show. Again, the Patreon is one dollar, five dollar, ten dollars. That that support helps kind of keep the show running, paying for the fees, and and kind of helping us up with our t- with our time uh, to make this because we write the scripts, edit the show, promote the show, and the the Patreon. It's just a way to kind of say thank you. And we want you guys to be a part of the show in some way and give you more content in the process. So thank you so much for who, who have donated and subscribed so far. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, that's all we have for you on today's episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sinationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, long emails about why you love Sunset Boulevard. And for some reason, you hate it. I guess you can do that, too. 
And if you're a new listener of the show or you're a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to the show yet, you got to do that soon. You got to do it now. Subscribe to the show on Cination, or for Cination Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. I was say we are we are big. It's the comments that got smaller. So, you know. <laughs> Leave us a nice, big, lengthy review about how much you enjoy the show. Yeah. Or don't enjoy the show. You know what? I'll read that, what, too. Words, words. Give us more words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all I got on that one. Um, and finally, don't forget to land follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.